The world is changing at a rate that we've never seen before. From business to art to sports, these changes are affecting every aspect of our lives. My name is Nick Kastner, and we're setting out to talk with the people who are altering the way things are done. Along with Alec McChesney, this is The Commonwealth. And today, our guests are David Graff and John Wirtz, two of the co-founders of Huddle. If you don't know what Huddle is, ask a high school athlete. David and John were college buddies when they set out to make it easier for coaches and athletes to watch film. Over the next 13 years, they've grown into an international business that is helping athletes and coaches in most sports from high schools to professional clubs. Ladies and gentlemen, David Graff and John Wartz. Thanks for joining me this morning, guys. Absolutely. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to be on. <laughs> so to start with, what is Huddle? Huddle is... Uh, our mission is help teams and athletes win. So I think it's probably the best place to start. But it's a company we founded 13 years ago to help make life easier for coaches, help teams use video to better communicate. Um, but ultimately, I think it ultimately comes down to the athlete, helping athletes perform better, reach their potential. I think that's been one of the coolest parts we've seen as we've built over those 13 years is when we get a chance to expose athletes in a greater way to give them a chance to play at the next level. So we saw that in a big way in American football at the high school level. And that's some of our favorite stories are when it's the kid from Eastern Oregon that wouldn't have gotten a look to play Division One football otherwise, but because he creates a highlight and gets a chance to get recruited by somebody like Michigan State, Washington State, and ultimately you know, landed his dream to play at Oregon. Those are absolutely some of our favorite stories. So, John, you mentioned um, starting this company 13 years ago. It was you two and then uh, Brian Kaiser. How did you three meet? Yeah, I can start. We, so the three of us went to college together here at the University of Nebraska, and we were all drawn to the university through the Rake School. It was a computer science and business honors program that really, the unique part about it was it integrated computer science and business together the whole time. And so I'm from Kansas City originally, and Brian Kaiser, our other co-founder, is from Kansas City. And that really was, I think, what made both of us take notice of Nebraska and come up. And I think it was the first time both of us set foot in Nebraska was interviewing for the Rake School. And uh, we saw campus. We loved the program, joined on, um, and over time kind of became, I speak for myself, became kind of a Nebraskan over the last, I guess it would be like 17, 18 years. Yeah, so Brian and John were randomly assigned roommates, actually, their freshman year. So (laughs) real luck of the draw there. And then... Freshman year, I guess I lived down the hall from you guys, but then by sophomore year, me and my roommate, our COO, a guy named Matt Mueller, two of us lived across the hall from Brian and John, basically for the next, the rest of our college careers and into grad school. How did you three uh, think of the, uh, the original concept of Huddle? So when I was in undergraduate work, I worked for the University of Nebraska Athletic Department, so I'd always had a passion around sports. Never really good enough to play, especially at that level, but want to get a job in there and just, you know, kind of be on the front lines and experience more of what's going on. Obviously, through the Rake School, we had the chance to meet Jeff Rakes, who is now one of our board of directors members. He's one of our lead investors. And one of his goals always at the Rake School was to take what is their junior and senior kind of um, capstone courses, which is called Design Studio, where teams of five to six students will spend 10 hours a week working on a project for a company like Microsoft, like Huddle. One of his dreams is always to see one of those projects benefit Nebraska football, specifically Nebraska football. <laughs> and so he, he and I brainstormed back and forth a number of times. One of the ideas he came and pitched the three of us on was, how could you take 
the playbook that is so basic that is just on paper right now and digitize that in more video game style setup. So we said, okay, that's interesting. We'll take a look at it. And we looked at the marketplace. There were quite a few other players in that area. Um, one of the companies had actually licensed the EA Sports engine. So honestly, you're not going to do better at making a video game out of a playbook than using what EA has created with Madden and with, at the time, NCAA football for so long. So we kind of went back to him and said, eh, I don't think that's really a great fit. But through my time at Nebraska in the athletic department, I got to know the then head coach of Nebraska football, Bill Callahan, and kind of shot that idea his way and asked him, what would you think about something like this? And he said, honestly, the video game thing, it's kind of cool. It's a recruiting gimmick, but I would never actually use that to teach my players. Like, there is so much more that happens that you can show in a video game. So much of it comes down to actually seeing the video and having them here so you can talk with them and teach them directly the points on the video. So from that, we kind of said, hmm, that sounds like an interesting opportunity. At the time, Nebraska was capturing all their practices, all their games, all of their opponents' games. And sometimes, depending on what the coaching staff was they were going to face, if the offensive coordinator had come from somewhere else or the defensive coordinator had or the quarterback's coach had, they'd want to watch all those previous schools' games also so they could understand more of the tendencies. But all that analysis had to be done on site. They had huge servers that were processing everything. They had private intranet run to all the computers so they could watch it there. And anything they wanted to take away was all burning DVDs. And if you can think back to that time, or the last time you watched a DVD, if you tried to rewind it all, it's not a great way to analyze video. If you're trying to look at footwork or the way somebody's moving their hands or how they're cutting, and you want to consistently rewind and just replay that multiple times, which is how coaches watch, DVDs just jump around and aren't a great experience at all. So, so much of that consumption was happening on site. So that's when John and I can talked about it and Brian, who's way smarter than both of us, was able to put together a solution that um, was the prototype we showed in Nebraska. And what was that original prototype? Yeah, it was. we literally made it in the basement of our duplex that we were living in at the time. And it, it was all smoke and mirrors for the most part. So if you, you had to very carefully click your way through it to make it look like it was this full system. But it really just showed the idea of, um, it was a video of a couple clips of Nebraska plays uh, from the previous season. Uh, some images of playbook that I think it wasn't even like a legal play. I think that we put together is such a bad like picture of a football play, but it's the idea of the playbook overlaid on that video clip, all shareable over the web. And so we we're showing them this this platform that went so far beyond what a DVD could do, um, and showed them how they could extend their coaching impact outside the facility for many more hours than a coach and you know a player could spend in a healthy way together, sitting in a chair at the facility. Um, the other thing it had was this concept of being able to telestrate on top of the video, like John Madden style was always the way we talked about it, um, add text on top of the video, and add the coach's voice on top of a key moment in that clip so that as the athlete watched it, they were always always kind of felt like they were in a, a virtual film session with the coach. Um, and then the final thing we talked about was the ability for them to track what the athletes were watching and how long they were spending in the system so that the coaches had this added layer of accountability that they hated not having when they just handed out a bunch of DVDs and paper playbooks and kind of crossed their fingers that you know, the right athletes put the time in. So we brought all that together, smoke and mirrors prototype, but the concept really came through. And the line coach Callahan that said back to us after being out in Oakland and near the Bay area and seeing lots of startups pitch him over and over again was, this is the first time I've seen something that really solves the key problem here that we're having. And that like resonated with us. It was a big deal. We went back that evening essentially and said like we feel like we really got the momentum to build 
a company around this if Nebraska will get behind us as our first customer. The only challenge was he loved it, which was great. But he also, this is probably February of 2006. So John and I are finishing grad school. Brian's finishing his undergrad degree a little slower than us, as we like to remind him <laughs> all the time. Uh, and he said, this is great. You know, I won it for spring football this year, which at that point is about a month out. So we had to explain to him, listen, this is a lot of smoke and mirrors. This is not something we can deliver for you for this spring. But if you'll sign on, commit, become a paying beta for us, and give us access to your players and coaches over this next year, we'll have something for you next spring. And so that's what really launched us and made us want to create a company. So Coach Callahan was your first customer? Yep, University of Nebraska football team. Bill Callahan and staff. So your original target market was college football teams, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then is that where you guys found the product market fit? Or it was so college and professional football was a market we knew best just from kind of my work there and background in football. And so that's what we targeted first. And that's where we thought, honestly, this is such a big market. We can grow this for a long time and build a great business here. And honestly, it was about 150 teams. When you look at what Division One kind of FBS football was at the time and what NFL's 32 teams, we figured, and you know, eventually we'll grow into maybe the NBA, maybe Major League Baseball, the NHL, maybe once we tap out all those markets, we'll cross the pond and try to get into the English Premier League and grow in professional soccer over there. But we always figured that was kind of a ways out. Professionals where we focused. Yeah. I'd say from product market fit, the coaches, whenever we were pitching coaching staffs, they were fired up about the concept. And, and so we were flying a lot of driving around just budget-wise at the time, um, pitching colleges. And the coaches would get really fired up, but then we were not enterprise salespeople. We had really no read on what it meant to go in and sell an enterprise and you know selling a division one school on the price tag we were asking the six figure kind of price tag is what we thought we needed to be at the chief financial officer of the school gets involved the board of regents in some cases so it's not the the full excuse there's definitely better product market fit to be had over time and we kind of figured it out but generally the coaching staffs liked it and then it just was a, a real slog to get all the way through to having them commit to this system and honestly, I'm, I was our salesperson at the time. So getting out there and getting in front of all these coaches, we had a lot of great visits with like the Oakland Raiders. We'd go out there. And even by the time that we'd gone to kind of that lower price point, we're pitching them on 25 grand a year. It was still such an operational budget item. And it was something that at the time they saw as additional work for a lot of people. So they had their processes down for burning DVDs. They didn't necessarily have an IT staff fully bought in or a video staff fully bought in that this could save them time. And so that's what we had to kind of work around and learn more about as we went to market. So by the time you guys got to market, what did you learn through the sales process that changed the product, caused the final final launch? So as we're going out and talking with all these professional and college teams, so Nebraska, we'll rewind a little bit. Nebraska, 2006, agreed to be our beta partner. We launched for them in 2007. 2007 wasn't a great year for Nebraska football, uh, resulted in the whole staff getting fired. And Coach Callahan decided he was going back to the NFL. You know, he felt like he had a little better fit there. He loved coaching offensive line, loved the dynamics of working with professional players. And so as he was interviewing for NFL jobs, he would take his tablet that had huddle on it and would showcase, this is how I teach my offense. This is how I teach offensive line play. You know, he'd show the plays directly on there. He'd show the video, show how he teaches footwork and things like that. And the really nice thing for us was we had a lot of NFL teams that saw that and became very interested in what the product had to offer. He ultimately ended up landing with the New York Jets, which became our second customer. So they signed on, would have been probably January of 2008, got them in, 
got them all installed, got to go through the process of getting Brett Favre trained up on the product, all of their coaches, spent a lot of time going back and forth from New York that year. But as we're going out and selling elsewhere, we're just seeing what, we're, what John was talking about earlier. It just wasn't quite matching up. It was an enterprise sale and a product that, honestly, the market just wasn't quite ready for. But we're going out there to clinics, and we kept hearing from high school coaches and smaller college coaches that said, this product's amazing. Why can't we buy it? Or how could this work for us? And for the first part of it, we would always say, we came up with enough excuses in our head of why it didn't work. You know, we were, for the Jets in Nebraska, we were putting servers on site. That was going to scale for high school. The price tag we were offering at the time, we didn't think made sense for high school. That was a reason not to. At the time, we didn't have a great capture tool to get the video off the camera and onto our server. We were relying on third-party software that big universities were buying, but smaller high schools didn't necessarily have. So finally, we realized that while we were struggling to sell to NFL and college teams, we had this very large interested market in high school teams. It was you know, 16,000 high schools that play American football. We should probably try to figure out a solution that could actually meet their needs. And how did you overcome those obstacles you just highlighted to bring the product to the high school teams? One catalyst for us, so we started pretty on a, early on at Huddle. We would go to uh, Las Vegas as our main kind of offsite for the company. And this was back when we were, even when we were just a team of eight or nine people, and we continued doing that for a number of years. And so one of those early times we went to Vegas for our offsite, we decided to take a chunk of that offsite and have our product team work on just some concepts that they thought could be transformational for our business or really important, but it was hard to get to in the day-to-day grind of just supporting the products we already released. And one of those products was a completely cloud-based hosted version of what we were doing for our professional and collegiate teams that worked completely in your in your web browser. And if you rewind back to 2008, like YouTube was just starting to kind of take off, but the idea of doing anything heavyweight in your web browser with video was kind of hard to imagine. But they worked on that prototype. We were out in Vegas. We we're trying to get our minds kind of out of the box that you work your way into pretty fast. And we saw how well this version of Huddle was working in an internet browser completely hosted by us. And that was so that was one of the catalysts. Is we, we thought that that was going to be the future, but we needed a little extra push. Sometimes you got to get out of the office and just create a nice time constraint and say, by the time we go to Vegas on this retreat, we want to be able to see see what's possible. Um, and then I went, hopped in my car and drove around the Midwest. So this was about two years into after founding Huddle and uh, drove around the Midwest and down to Texas to see if we could get around 12, 13 pilot high schools and small colleges to, to join on. And I would demo them what we built for Nebraska and the Jets, but then tell them, you're going to get a lighter weight, more affordable version of this. I couldn't show it to them because we hadn't built it yet. But we just wanted to see if we could get 12 or 13 to sign on board to commit to using it. So then fast forward, we thought they were going to use that in tandem with whatever they were doing already, whether it was burning DVDs or some of them had other software they were using that was installed on a laptop or two. But in that first season in the fall when we got to late August, September, and we started rolling out this hosted version, almost all, I think pretty much all of the 13 teams we had signed on just kind of completely flipped over to it. Even though it had plenty of bugs and issues and it was missing functionality, it was just so much so much better, fundamentally better to have their video hosted and available to the whole team and accessible from home and coaches able to work Saturday morning with their mug of coffee before they met as a staff, you know, breaking down the film and getting prepared, that they, they just made the switch. And that's when we knew we were onto something. John, you mentioned your 12-team road trip to get high schoolers to demo the product. How easy was it to find those teams? It was easy to find the team, the teams to go visit. And that's yes, one of the yeah, benefits yeah. of the um, the high school sports market and the college market is you can identify the customer. You know where their address is. You know who the <laughs> yeah. coach is. I know serving like small businesses, it can be tough for a startup that kind of just needs to even discover where their customers are. 
we knew where they were, but there were some challenges. Uh, the story I like to point back to is I went down to my alma mater. Um, I was valedictorian there. I knew the athletic director was my high school math teacher in eighth grade. Like you'd think this would be the most softball pitch ever. I was offering it for free. Uh, to them and I was showing them what we built for Nebraska and the Jets so it's like it was one of the first customers I went to I'm like I don't know how they could how can they pass this up and they turned me down Uh, just because the idea of using a new system they thought their current system was good enough they had their routines and so they politely just kind of said you know come back when this is more of a real thing we're not on board that was a long four-hour drive back from Blue Springs Missouri to come back and tell the team like the softball one did not go well so surprisingly hard I guess to find those 12 or 13, easy to identify where they were, but surprisingly hard to get them on board with a new vision for how they would work and a new vision for how they'd use video. We did leverage a lot of those type of connections. So John mentioned his high school. We had a couple of, I think Kyle, both Kyles were still interns at the time. Maybe Kyle Murphy yeah. had started full time. Kind of leveraged the high schools that they had gone to and got them to sell their coaches on it. One of our guys who was one of our early team members, Kyle Dieterdien's dad was the principal at the high school. And so he was able to help push the AD in the right direction to adopt it. And they were one of our very first customers, one of our best customers we've had, honestly, for giving us feedback and bringing some real talk to us. Yeah. Um, I read beforehand that you guys have both spoken about how much you've learned in that sales process when reaching out to those those original teams. But it sounds like a bunch of different team members were doing, doing the sales. How did you make sure all that knowledge was retained and shared internally. So that first year, so after John did the work and we had the 12 team pilot, we kind of knew it was time to take that product out to everybody. We knew we wanted to build it in a way that it could address everything from the small class D high schools in Nebraska, all the way up to the small colleges like the University of Nebraska Kearney and kind of capture that whole wide array. The really nice thing in American football is with the seasonality of that sport, spring is very much a learning time. For coaches, so they get out to clinics. A lot of them almost every weekend in kind of February, March range. So we had no shortage of events to go to and get in front of coaches. And at the time, we were probably 20 people somewhere in that range. Literally everybody went on the road. So our engineers, um, sales support, obviously our finance team, HR, everybody would go out. I think the most that I went out to was like it was eight weekends in a row from mm-hmm. late January until you know into March where I was going to some of the most, you know, Cleveland, Ohio, Allentown, (laughs) Pennsylvania. You're going to these exotic locales. You're showing up on a Thursday. Uh, Get there in the morning, get set up, and stay as late as you can on Thursday night until the last coach walks out. Be there first on Friday. Stay until the bitter end of it Friday morning. Do the same on Saturday, Sunday. Come back, do your day job, you know, Monday through Wednesday. Catch everybody up. So we'd always, that Monday, get everybody together in a room and share the feedback that we'd gotten, share the leads, share what people liked and what they didn't, and made sure that the next week when we went out on the road, everybody was better off for it. Yeah, we had paper lead cards that we would fill out at the booth. So these were, we were at clinics, but we essentially had a trade show set up, you know, at the mm-hmm. table with the tablecloth. Probably not a lot of tablecloths even in the early in the early days. is was a little janky set up, but we had paper lead cards. So after every coach we talked to filled out the card, on the back we marked whether it was a hot, medium, or hot, warm, or cold lead, made a note, initialed it, and then for the larger uh, clinics, we would sit down a lot of times like that night, every single night, and everyone would kind of pull their paper out in a heap. Hopefully it was a heap if it went well. Sometimes it's a little tiny pile. And we just flip over and go through you know, every single one of them together while we had, you know, had a drink or whatever at the hotel you know, bar or restaurant. Um, Ideally free happy hour. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. So those were the kinds of things we were doing a ton of. We had a value for the company back then of everyone sells, literally. 
everyone. So that's why our developers, our interns, everyone was on the road. We try to pair people up. You know, if they really didn't know the product deeply yet, they would, wouldn't be going out there solo, hopefully. Uh, sometimes they were. And then everyone came back with just this huge new wealth of knowledge direct from the customer's mouth of what resonated, what didn't. As a group of friends starting a business, how did you decide who was going to do what? Like what roles each of you would have? That was something we were lucky because the three of us had a natural skill set that was just really complementary. And I think that's why 13 years later, we're still really good friends with super healthy business relationship. I've been more in the messy middle of the product strategy and how you take what we're seeing in the market and what the technology can do and figure out how to bring it together. Brian Kaiser, just an amazing technologist, great software engineer, great at seeing the waves of technology kind of disruption coming in advance to help us think about how to apply them. And then literally, he's just great at building, building the actual product itself. And then David operationally, really strong operationally, really strong at understanding the sports market, building relationships with coaches, with analysts, being out there um, in market, uh, plus a number of other things that have just been really valuable around finance and accounting and some of those more operational sides of the business. And that's just, you know, we move into each other's areas all the time, early on especially, but generally we, we understood our, our lanes. Then the one other thing I'll add is we had Jim McClurg is one of our advisors early on, who's really served as an executive coach for us. We didn't fully understand that at the time. It's like he's a business advisor to the company, but really he was an executive coach to the three of us. And he's the chairman of our board uh, still today and hugely valuable because he would just ask really point you know, pointed direct questions to the three of us or to us individually of, you know, how are you guys doing? Who's responsible for what here? You explain it, explain it to me. And so we kind of had to explain to him. Set of really good boundaries around decision rights and information rights, you know, that have served as well to this day. I mean, there's areas that each of the three of us own, and there are a lot of areas that none of us even own, that there are a lot of other leaders on our team that now fully own themselves. But always set the standard of, it is totally fair for any one of you to ask the other one any question that you want to. That's, you have information rights, it's your business for it. But you've got to ask that in the right way. You're not asking in a way that's necessarily questioning or pushing somebody on that decision. It's more about, hey, I want to understand this better. Help me see what you're seeing from this market. And that's been super helpful for us along the way. After going after the mid and small size high school and college football teams, how did you decide which sports to enter next? We made that move pretty quick, honestly. So we launched, as John was saying, high school American football product was launched in 2008, that August. And honestly, I think, was it early 2009? We'd rolled it out for basketball yeah. to start getting teams on board, or late, even late 2008. Yeah, we built with that mindset pretty early. Yeah. If we know as we move into the high school, if this goes well, multi-sport is going to be really logical. We made we some pricing have... mistakes early on, yeah. setting those up. A lot of lessons that we're still trying to clean up and just the way the team structure and things like that. But yeah, we knew multi-sport was critical from the start. Yeah, um, but we took, we took a very American football-centric view of basketball at the time. So, you know, American football, you have a sport that's very start-stop oriented, maybe one of the most in the world when it comes to team sports. At, you, know, you start a play, the play's over, blow the whistle, regroup, line back up. Um, so our system was made to kind of flow that way, where you had these individual clips for each play, and you can kind of think about it almost like an Excel spreadsheet, but on steroids for being able to tie that to video and do a whole lot of other things with it. For basketball, that works pretty well because you do have possessions, but there's a lot more free-flowing action in basketball. So we made it work, but we also realized a couple of years later that to really go multi-sport, we're going to need to go kind of rethink the guts of the whole platform. So we launched into basketball by bending our American football product, and that worked well, and it was a pretty powerful product. And then about two years later, we went and kind of rewrote a lot of the product from the ground up to be great for basketball, volleyball, soccer, football globally, uh, rugby, lacrosse, pretty yeah. much everything else, honestly. Yeah, so we didn't have the four. I guess my point there is we 
we had the foresight to realize basketball was the next sport and we could enter that sport a pretty effectively, but it took us a couple more years to learn what we needed to learn to really do multi-sport right. And at this time, were you still working with the Jets and the larger contracts? Yep, we were doing both at the same time. So we were, And we were seeing that as a great way to leverage as we entered a new state. So we continued to focus on the professional side of it, really on the American football side exclusively. So we had the Jets, had the Cleveland Browns, Denver Broncos... Oregon was an early customer, Stanford was an early customer, Michigan, Minnesota, Penn State, like kept amassing teams out there. And then eventually, at one point we got up to where we probably had 80 or 90 Division I teams that were using Huddle on a consistent basis, share their video out, and probably maybe a third of the NFL. So probably about a dozen teams in total there. David, you mentioned earlier some um, like pricing mistakes you made early on, earlier on. Can you expand like what, what they were and what you learned from them? I don't know how much time we have left on the show. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of lessons for us. I think what I was referencing earlier, one of the big mistakes we made early on was assuming that if you have a basketball program at a high school, that boys, that the boys team and the girls team were going to be very aligned on how they use their budget, kind of the tools that they bought together. And we assumed they operated more as a single unit. And so that's how we priced it was if you bought for your American football team, if you wanted to add basketball as a sport, you could add it for half price and I would get it for both boys and girls. Now, the reality of it was they were coaching staffs that sometimes got along great, sometimes didn't. Uh, sometimes were competing for gym time or other resources. What they didn't like competing for on Huddle was for their storage hours. So because they were aligned to the same program, if they wanted to store, if say the they had 100 hours of storage and girls team was storing 30 and the boys team was storing 70, There'd be a lot of friction between those two coaches. Really, they just each needed their own instance. So that was one of the learning just how athletic departments operate and how sport coaches within there operate was kind of a critical lesson for us early on. Yeah. But one thing that did work really well was kind of full school pricing and pricing it in a way where it really made sense for the um, American football coach to go out and talk to the basketball coaches and the volleyball coaches to get them on board because it brought the overall cost of huddle down for the school. Since it was half price for sport number two and number three, you know, number four, number five, it was naturally incentivized for them to kind of bring, build a consortium and come together to the athletic director and say, hey, we want to do this together. It's going to be cheaper for everyone if we commit to huddle together. And that, that worked really well. We've changed that pricing over time um, to adapt it and make it more effective for school, for Huddle to administer. But the general concept of this kind of full school package has been really important for us. One of the beauties of that was a lot of coaches coach multiple sports at high school. So if they'd used it for football and they also coached girls basketball, for example, they would want that same tool set there. If they coached wrestling, they'd want to use that same tool set for their athletes. And it was the same case for athletes. They were, if they were building their highlight for one sport, they wanted to be able to do the same for other sports and be able to get be able to share that out to family and friends and to college recruiters. What was the biggest difference selling selling a high school compared to a NFL team? I think that that recruiting piece was a really important element that is just a totally different pitch to the high school. So for the NFL, eventually we were able to come back to the to the NFL and to call it collegiate teams and help them sell them products that could help them recruit high school. But when we're selling to the high school, a lot of that coach's job is to make sure that their athletes can have the best crack at a scholarship, you know, the best chance to play at the collegiate level. And Huddle could play a huge role in that. So when we're talking with a high school or a club that's working with you know, 12, 13, 15, 16, 18-year-old athletes, a big part of what we talk about in Huddle is the ability for the athlete to take that video and make highlights, build their athletic profile, share that information out, get noticed, get recruited. Um, and that's just something, it's not as a factor really at all for the NFL when they're thinking about their own athletes there. They're more just purely focused on developing the athlete, preparing for the next opponent. 
Let's take a quick break so we can tell you about a live event we have coming up. On Thursday, November 14th, we are hosting a live recording at the Foundry in Lincoln, Nebraska. Happy hour starts at 4 p.m. At 5, Senator Anna Wisher is hosting a 20-minute long question and answer session. At 5.20, I'll interview Ali Schwanke, founder and CEO of SimpleStrat. The event will close by the same time happy hour ends, which is at 6. Check out our Facebook page to learn more about November 14th's event. Now, back to the show. According to Crunchbase, Huddle has raised $108.9 million. Two of those rounds were in 2008 and 2010, which is an, which is an inopportune time because it was in the middle of the Great, great Recession. What was it like raising, raising money in an economic downturn? Yeah, for us, I mean, it was a challenge for sure, but we were lucky that we had a great investor base from the start. So when we brought on our first round of angel investment back in, it would have been June or July of 2007, I think. We brought on Jeff Rakes, uh, was one of our lead investors, and then a group here in Lincoln and Omaha called YPO. It was a YPO forum, so Young Presidents Organization. It was a group of uh, 10 guys that had gotten together and each decided to chip in some money, kind of be a fun angel investment to do together. And while the economic challenges of 2008, 2010 may have affected some of them, others were less affected and could see our vision of where we wanted to take things and saw the idea and saw customers actually buying it and were happy to put more money in. How did you get connected with um, that YPO? Uh, obviously, Jeff Rakes through the Rakes School, yep. but those, those other initial, initial investors. Yeah, so it was actually a presentation John did for some University of Nebraska Athletic Department boosters, if I remember yeah. correctly. Yeah, the Nebraska, the football program, the athletic department invited us in, which are really fortunate that they did. They just wanted us really to demo what we were doing with the Huddle product for the Nebraska football team to a number of boosters, just to give them a good piece of evidence on how Nebraska is staying on the cutting edge and look at how we're investing in the team. This is exciting. No one else is doing this. So I gave the you know the spiel. We were, we were good at it. We've been out doing it for a while. And afterwards, one of the people in the room came up and said, hey, are you guys raising money? And we just started talking about how we you know, were ready to get more serious and start looking at raising around. So the timing was perfect. And so I mentioned to him, yeah, I didn't, didn't bring it up when I was talking because I didn't you know, want, didn't know if that was going to be appropriate. But yeah, we were starting to think about that. Um, and he said, yeah, I've got this group of nine other people with me that I think would love to get involved and it'd be really fun for us. And they were also, all of them were passionate about the idea of growing businesses in Nebraska and in the Midwest. So kind of stars all aligned in a really great way. Nebraska football fans, strong business people, and passionate about startups in the Midwest. And yeah, it was only about six months later we were able to close the round. And really, we wanted to have Nebraska signed, paid as a customer, and have be in the midst of launching the product um, as we raised our first round because we knew it would help our valuation. We felt like it was a really good milestone to drive towards before we raised our true kind of seed or Series A. Yeah. Eventually, I would assume that your team had to raise outside of the Midwest, correct? So we've still leveraged that group of investors for a lot of that capital. So Mike Dunlap, who's chairman of a company here in town called Nelnet, was part of that original YPO investment group. And so pretty quickly as we started talking with that crew, actually even before we closed around, I spent quite a bit of time with Mike just talking through some lessons he'd had from building Nelnet and kind of all the other businesses they've been involved in over the years and really found that he was not only going to be an incredible investor, but an amazing advisor and director for us. And so when we went back to raise a larger round to kind of help us power some of the acquisitions that we did, Nelnet was the biggest capital party to that. The majority of venture capital in America flows to the east or west coast. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give someone looking to raise in Nebraska? We have been very fortunate um, that when we first got started with the first company that we built, it took some 
time to evolve the idea to get to where we really had good product market fit and we were able to build a business. But I think as you get there, if you have a good idea, there's no shortage of capital that's interest, interested. And I think, honestly, we've talked with every major VC and most major private equity firms will reach out to me on a pretty consistent basis with interest in if we were ever to do another round. And it, to me, it doesn't matter if you're located in Palo Alto in New York City or in Lincoln, Nebraska. If it's a good company and a good idea, they're going to find you. Yeah. I think early on, my advice to, like, to people who are interested in entrepreneurship early on probably goes for no matter where you're at, definitely here in the Midwest, is start building your network early of strong business people that have the means to be an angel investor for you. Like when you're, it's easy to underestimate the importance of that when you're in university or maybe you just, you're coming out of high school and pursuing whatever you're pursuing, but just start building that network because that was everything for us is having the right network and being kind of directly connected or one connection removed from some really helpful, smart, smart business people. And it doesn't really matter whether you're on the coast or in the Midwest, like that's where that first, those first rounds are going to come from that tight network that you've built as you've formulated the idea or well before that. Huddle is now a global company. You guys have 14 offices in nine different countries, correct? Yeah. We've actually got, now we're in 20 different countries. 20, okay. Yeah. Got a team of about 2,100 people now. What have you two learned operating a, um, a company that is now, now global? Oh, it's really hard. <laughs> I think it's, um, when we first got started, the ease of having all of your team in one office location where you understand what the employee and employment laws are is really awesome and critical to stick with that for as long as you can. Obviously, it's been amazing to grow our team as much as we have and to be able to experience all these different cultures, but it is challenging. I mean, laws are just totally different, different places with how much they favor the employer or the employee with just little pitfalls you have to avoid in different areas. So one of our biggest lessons has been don't assume that you know anything when you go into a market. Like, be prepared to take a step back and make sure that you really understand the regulatory environment, that you really have all your processes in place, and go in clear-eyed with that and recognizing there's going to be a lot of expense associated with starting up a new country. So maybe there's better ways to experiment with that. But I have no regrets along the way. We have... It's so fun when we get to go see our teams in other offices, get to experience their cultures, get to learn from them. Having that broad geographic diversity has also helped us expand our understanding of the sports market so much. Like just last week I was out with one of the NFL teams, kind of sitting in camp with them, just seeing their processes. I was able to talk to them more about how I see it happen in Aussie Rules football, for example, where they're very tech forward, where some of the things they're doing in-game is far beyond any other sport we've seen. So to be able to take those lessons from Australia and bring them back to you know American football here in the U.S. and take some of those American football lessons and take them to how football or soccer is played in Italy and talk with some teams about that, like all of that has been incredible. Huddle has also made some um, global global acquisitions. How do you um, how does your company approach if if an opportunity is the right fit to, to acquire a company? Yeah, so over our 13 year history, we've done nine acquisitions now and each one of them is kind of a different story so the first one this was at the time we thought it was just bold like it had never been seen in the space before we were selling like john was saying earlier in american football to high schools we'd grown from that first year having 12 to the next year i think we set a goal of getting to 75 high schools and we ended up we're at about 300 high schools that year grew to about 2200 the next year and as we're looking at that we saw that in the marketplace, we were the first ones doing subscription software. 
Um, everyone else was doing perpetual license. You buy a single seat for your laptop. Maybe you pay for support afterwards, but you might be investing fifty or $100,000 up front for some of these bigger schools. And so for us to be able to get them to change their mindset and go from that larger upfront investment to, I can go back to my ID or my booster club and say, yeah, you know that $100,000 we spent? Eh, we could have gotten away with $3,000 a year for a tool we would have liked better. It was just hard to get them to wrap their heads around that sunk cost. So first one, I think we were sitting in our conference room at one of our older offices and just saying, what are some ways we could push, push this even further? What are some marketing techniques? And I can't remember which one of us just said, well, would we consider just trying to acquire this company? It's kind of felt like very bold yeah. thinking at the time. I mean, even when we were talking with our board of directors, a lot of people, a lot of folks saw it as, I don't know if you should do that. That's a little bold. Mike Dunlap was one who pushed it all in full steam. Of just, <laughs> you got it. This, this is absolutely going to make sense for you. So I just happened to be, for that first one, in the city that the um, company was located in, you know, randomly. Uh, met up with the founder for a cup of coffee and just kind of shared how we saw the market and brought them on. And really, that one was a customer acquisition. And our, both of our first two ones were acquire the customers. I think on the first one, we brought over a couple sales reps that joined the team. But really, just get them get those customers transitioned to our platform as fast as possible and just pull in more customers. And that helped us grow to, right now we sit at 98% yeah. market share in American well, football. I think for those ones we think about, what's the what's the investment that makes sense to accelerate our growth? We felt confident we could get there. But in that case, we could join forces with these two companies and accelerate it by, say, a year or two years or three years. So you can start to kind of think about what would the value of that be. And really help the customers at the yeah. end because all of them wanted to be on the huddle for the exchange platform and the efficiencies they got. So how can we help them make that transition sooner? So after we did that first one, that would have been 2011, we were all kind of sitting back at very successful acquisition. Economics made a lot of sense. We're kind of saying, what would be the, what are the bolder plays in this market we could make? And one of the ones that we identified at that point in time was who we saw as really the global leader in video analysis at the professional level, which was a company called Sports Tech based out of Australia. So we're like, all right, this was kind of fun. Let's try to reach out and see what it would take to bring them on board. So I reached out to their founder and CEO, kind of floated that idea. And um, obviously time zones were a factor. So we eventually got on the phone one night and realized that his vision of where the valuation was and where we saw things were just widely different at that point. So agreed we'd stay in touch and kind of continue down our paths and be friendly competitors down the road when the time made sense as we've gotten into their space. So... Fast forwarded, would have been we did acquisitions in 11 and 12. 2014, we acquired two different companies for two very different reasons. So early that year, we acquired a company based in the UK to help us get into global football market. They had a number of Premier League customers, some rugby customers, a growing but very small spread in Europe. And at the time, their, one of their founders just happened to reach out to me on LinkedIn, which I'm not a great LinkedIn user. I don't reply to a lot of messages on there. Uh, but having a look at his, saw their business, saw it was super similar to what we were doing with Huddle Pro initially. Um, only they were on top of the sports tech platform, that other company that I mentioned. So decided to do that deal, bring them on board. Later that year, what we saw as kind of one of the emerging trends in video analysis was a lot of mobile capture and more of the freemium model. And there were a couple of businesses at the time we looked at, decided to buy one based in Boston, which gave us our Boston office. It's a product we now, we still have called Huddle Technique, which is really big in the golf space, tennis, individual sports. But with replay analysis, that one that I mentioned earlier in 2014, kind of cemented for us even more so that global growth was going to be a big part of our future. So later that year in 2014, 
I was down in Australia actually for a conference um, clinic where we were just trying to sell basketball coaches. I went with one of our global sales folks at the time and decided to stop by and visit Sports Tech. So that was you know, three years after the initial contact was made. Started to get a little closer on how we both saw valuation of the business and spent the next basically year getting that one to the finish line. Um, so that was one that we'd sourced a long time before and just slowly worked our way at to bring on board in 2015. We followed up with a couple acquisitions into 2017, early 18. One of them was to strengthen our volleyball platform and help run out our tool set for those coaches called Volumetrics. Early 2018, we bought a company based out of the Netherlands that was doing really amazing things around automated capture, kind of in the set up, set a camera, capture the entire court, eliminate one of coaches' biggest pain points at the time, which was finding somebody consistently to capture high quality video. That was always a challenge. With this acquisition, we were able to really accelerate our work in that, make it a lot simpler. And then just this summer, we did two acquisitions. The first one we did in May was a company called Crossover, who we talked to a number of times over the years as they built up their product set. And there was a lot that we could learn from each other because they've been in a space that we're in right now with our huddle assist offering, which is provide breakdowns for teams with our team internally and some third parties that we work with. And the second one was really an amazing company that's been built out of a small town in Italy called Scout. And what they do is have really revolutionized scouting in global football. So it's a totally different world where they have transfer markets and where players are transferred and clubs are paying each other. They've taken that from a global platform, pulled all that video, broken down all those games, and really made it easy for analysts, for owners, for coaches to understand and look at the players that they might need to get to the next goal that they have. You two have uh, both touched on how valuable mentors were to you as you started as, as you started this journey. What's one piece of uh, piece of advice that you both have from a mentor early on? Yeah, I was just talking to some founders last week and mentioned this. I think it's really important. I get asked the question a lot, like how do you find great mentors? And I think people are looking for like what kind of equity package do you have to structure? Or a lot of times it's like how did you build your advisory board? And they're looking for more like operationally, what are the things you do? Um, I think it all comes down to when you get a chance to meet with it, somebody who could be an advisor who is advising you, making that a super engaging experience for that person. So showing up with some tough questions that are going to be fun for that that person to engage with you on some of it's just the basics i see people mess up all the time like take notes when you're there um optimally with paper and a pen in front of that person even if you're faking it i don't really care they, you know <laughs> just take notes and just when you show up with nothing in front of you and you're sitting down and it's just feels like a chat you know people that are going to be great advisors to you don't want to waste time and they want to sit down and spend 30 minutes or an hour getting into some you know fun meaty conversation about tough business challenges or product challenges so make it fun and engaging you know follow up really actively Make sure they understand you listened. So in that follow-up, help them hear that you listened to what they said. So it's just these basic things that I think we, we took for granted, but early on it was something we naturally did fairly well. It's now become a value for our company. We listen. It's actually one of our five values. But yeah, listen actively and just make that time count with that person. That's the most important thing you can do. Because um, great advisors, they're not going to, if they're asking about equity or don't send them an NDA in advance, you know, don't be worrying about equity package or stock options or things like that early on. If those things that people are interested in really early on, that's not going to be a great advisor for you. I create a real relationship and engage with that person. And that's honestly what let us punch above our weight mm-hmm. for a board of directors very early on was when we had meetings, we were fully engaged in listening. That's what we heard from guys like Jeff Rakes, like Mike Dunlap, who had no shortage of demands for their time, but would commit you know, that time to us because they knew that we were actually going to listen to what they had to say. We might not always take their advice, and they didn't want us to. Sometimes they're going to be right, sometimes they're going to be wrong. 
But regardless, they knew that we would be listening and processing that information and applying those lessons that they'd seen in their business lives before that and make Huddle even better. One other thing I'd add in there, too, is um, there's another company called Intercom. I love a lot of the things they talk about. One of their values for the product team or principles is think big, start small. And I think sometimes here, especially in the Midwest, we miss the think big part. But when you're sitting down talking with these advisors, if they can get a, a taste of at least or see that vision you have for this, how big this thing could be, but you're not biting the whole thing off at once, you've got to release smart starting point. That's another thing that gets kind of high impact individuals to want to lean in and spend that time with you. So it's a tough balancing act, but you have to find that balance between I've got this big vision. If this next step works, I can see kind of to step two and three and it's, it becomes big and interesting, but I want to talk to you about the next step and figure that out. I see people kind of mess up both ways. Like they're just caught up in a big fuzzy vision and that's it. They can't, they haven't even really started thinking about the next step or more often they're aiming just too narrow and uh, it doesn't make it compelling enough. So an overall theme of the show is how do we um, encourage more innovation in the Midwest? What, um, what's your guys' perspective on, on how we find that answer? I think helping people understand what the real risk is can be helpful, especially coming out of university. Like It's such a great time for people to take some swings and take some risks. Whether it's joining, maybe they're not ready with their idea yet, but they can join the kind of startup or company that's going to get them ready quickly instead of kind of getting hopping into a corporate environment that isn't going to necessarily help prepare them to be an entrepreneur as fast. Um, or they just, if they've got an idea they that's kind of ready, kind of help nudge them to take a crack at it early on when you don't have quite as many of the other like risks surrounding you with family and other pressures. So, so that's part of it. How can we have our university system and other kind of organizations and systems here help people take those risks early on and not be you know quite as intimidated to think big, take a risk around an idea that is a bigger idea, and be not afraid to fail. And we got incredibly lucky that the company that we started fresh out of college ended up working for us and we've been at it for 13 years but obviously that's not going to be the norm there's going to be a lot of ideas that fail so i think trying to get more of that acceptance around that point is going to be critical for midwest to be able to push more people to try something even if it's not going to end up working ultimately yeah the investment community's got to get behind that also we we had really patient investors that had a lot of trust in us. And we burnt through all of our Series A dollars trying to get the college you know, NFL business off the ground. And it wasn't off the ground. We had some great customers, but it was definitely not a functioning business yet. But they came back in. We did another raise and went after high school. It was essentially a fresh business. But they were willing to do that, let us fail for two years, and, and then take another swing. We need more investors that are willing to do that. And not even just you know once, but twice or three times if the entrepreneurs got the, the talent. And how do you think we do that? It involves changing an investor's mindset, which can be difficult, I guess. One like flywheel, this isn't, this is not an easy solution, but I think it's just reality is we need more businesses. We need to get that flywheel going of larger businesses being willing to grow here, not sell, not sell quite so early. You might still get acquired, you know, later on, but optimally get down that path to become really large private businesses or IPO and be here. I like a Nelnet, for example, so that you generate enough capital and enough kind of people that have seen failure and are willing to get behind it, that now you've got this you've got this circle of investors now that have kind of seen it and been in it and they can spread that wealth out. And so that's and I don't think it takes a whole lot of companies that hit that category, but if we can just get more companies that can get to that escape velocity kind of size where when they do exit or the IPO or whatever it might be, that you've got now ten or twenty or forty people that have some liquidity that can angel invest and with a different you know, maybe more less risk averse mindset. So that's that's part of the equation, which is why I've been trying to talk more and more about like big ideas here are a good thing, and we need to we need to help entrepreneurs who are thinking big not get not get intimidated, not kind of beat that idea down. They should find a logical small first step, 
always that you have to do that, but the idea should be should be big and then try to keep that see if we can keep that here. All right. Well guys, thanks for coming on the show with me today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's been fun. fun. That will do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. We would love for you to subscribe to our channel and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also like the Commonwealth on Facebook and follow Alec and I on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. We release episodes on Mondays, so stay tuned for next week.